but they do. It only takes one person with influence to affect a lot of people. In recent weeks and months, as Bud prayed about this morning, we have seen so much. We've seen so much devastation, so much hatred, so much violence, so much attack, so much amplification of issues that it's hard especially those who believe in Christ, it's hard to center ourselves. And it's one thing to be here on church on Sabbath and to be praising God. It's another thing to be on Facebook and people have influence where they shouldn't. Just be honest. You've been on Facebook and you've seen a church member. Lord have mercy. Post something that'll make you so mad. Am I telling the truth? And you say, how in the world could they post that? How could they be a Christian and believe that? And it's interesting how social media has provided people a platform of influence. And what's even worse is sometimes we allow voices to influence us. It just takes one person. It takes one person to say something to you and fly you off the rail. Come on, be honest. It just takes one person to look at you wrong. Some of you are business owners. Some of you are run a practice. Uh, and, you, and you come to your office and things aren't going well. And it just takes that one person. You say, you know, I'm going to fire that person by the end of the day. I'm going to let them go. Maybe it's you and you work for someone else and you get to work. And you see that boss, man, I'm going to quit. If they say one more thing to me, if my supervisor says one more thing to me, I'm going to leave with my shirt off. Now, that's another story. <laughs> I don't think I got time to tell you. I had a friend. Uh, well, he wasn't a friend. I worked with this guy. I used to work at Red Robin. Don't judge me. I loved working there. I was good. I could probably still kill it in the kitchen straight up. But I worked at Red Robin. The guy came in. i never forget this. Big guy, he used to work out. He says, I'm going to quit today. I said, oh, really? He said, I'm going to quit, and I'm going to take my shirt off and walk out. I didn't believe him. I didn't believe him. He was talking. He was quiet the whole time, and he said, I'm going to quit. So he waited, and right when we got busy, and he literally, I quit, yelling this big old drama, theatrics, took his shirt off and walked out the front door. I don't know why he did that. But, you know, when, you, when you're going to quit, I guess you're going to quit in style. Sometimes all it takes is one person. All it takes is one person to make us upset. All it takes is one person to mess us up. That one text at 2 in the morning, are you awake? Lord have mercy. Don't let me get started on that. But, you know, the good thing is that sometimes all it takes is one person. To change the world. All it takes is a Rosa Parks. All it takes is a Martin Luther King Jr. All it takes is a Mother Teresa. All it takes is one person who makes up in their mind to say, I am going to make a change in the positive. I believe that the church is the place of God's people that God sends out into the world and says, I'm going to give you influence. I'm going to give you voice. 
and I'm going to give you power. I'm not going to give you a platform to tear down, but I'm going to give you a platform to build up. I'm going to let you go into a screaming conversation of discussion and disagreement, and I'm going to send my church to model what my position is. When I think about our positions, times when we argue about things that we may even believe personally or politically or academically, the things, size that we typically fall on. I'm reminded of a story in Joshua where Joshua's getting ready to go into the land of promise and he's preparing for that. This is the place that God himself wants him, him to go. And he's down by the river contemplating the next move. And what happens is the soldier runs up on him. The soldier confronts him, and he says, whose side are you on? Joshua grabs his sword, and the, the person says, I'm on neither side. And he realizes that's the captain of the Lord's army. Jesus himself says, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on my side. I hope this is helping somebody because I really want you to understand that it only takes one person to make the decision to say, I'm cleaning it up. I I'm tired of what's happening, and I'm going to make a decision by the grace of God to come in and set things in order. Because that's really all chaos is. It's when things are out of order. When people and places of authority or leadership or in people in places of influence or people who are serving are out of order. When people aren't listening to the leader. When the leader's not listening to the people, when husbands aren't listening to wives and wives aren't listening to husbands and children aren't listening to parents and parents aren't listening to children, when things are out of order, you have chaos. But it just takes one person. How many people? It just takes one person to make up their mind and say, I'm cleaning it up. And that's what we're finding in Nehemiah. We're finding an individual, a man named Nehemiah, who made the decision that he's cleaning it up. Now, this is a time of the history of God's people where God's people had been in bondage. They had been in Babylon for many years based on their disobedience, and God had removed them, moved them from where they were from, but as promised, he was going to return them back to the land they came from. And as they went back, things weren't going so well. And Nehemiah was actually a worker who lived and worked for the king of Babylon. And as he was working for them, he heard that something's not going well back in at home. And he asked, he took some time to pray, and Pastor Sergio has a wonderful sermon series he preached earlier this year on this text. And as he began to make the decision, he says, I'm going to help my people. And so the book of Nehemiah and parts of Ezra is about Nehemiah coming back and establishing this new nation, this new nation to believe what God says and do what God had called him to do. And so Nehemiah comes through, he sets things in order, he has enemies, and he works hard. And we actually find at the end of chapter 12, and really the beginning of chapter 13, that Nehemiah went back to work. He went back to Washington, D.C. to work, and he comes back, we're not sure exactly how long, but it's several years later, and he finds there's been some problems back at home. Nehemiah was the one who set things in order, but he goes away and he comes back and finds out there's been some problems. And when I look at this text, I think it's amazing as a blueprint to how we can clean it up. When you're looking at things in your life that you're saying, you know what, this is not in order. Things are not in order. Maybe it's your health. 
Maybe it's your diet. Maybe it's your finances, your relationship. You're saying to yourself, I had this set up at one time, but now it's unraveling. It's not, it's not what it should be, and I need to do something about it. And Nehemiah gives us a great blueprint. And that's what I want to share with you for the next few minutes is how you can clean it up. I don't just want to tell you to clean it up. Most of us know we got to clean it up. Preacher's job is not to tell you what's wrong in your life. It's supposed to tell you how to get some help. Amen? And the Spirit of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through the saving salvation of Jesus, we can clean it up. So let's go a little look at this text a little bit further. Nehemiah 13. And I just got some highlights that I want to put on the screen. But basically what begins to happen is we're going to run through this chronologically. I'm going to pull some things out for you to help you see how we can clean it up. So here in the beginning of chapter 13 uh, that Nehemiah finds out uh, that there's some problems back home when he goes home. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, before this happened, basically he had the book of the law read. What he did is say, let's, let's start this over with an assembly. I'm going to call a church service. And we're going to read the book of the law. We're going to reorient ourselves, adjust ourselves to the value of the kingdom. We're going to make an adjustment. So he says, the Bible says, before this happened, Elisha the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storeroom and placed it in Tobiah's disposable disposal. The room had previously been used for storing grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles up for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites and singers of the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings of the priests. Now, let me stop right there to kind of let you know what's going on here. So, Eli, or excuse me, Nehemiah had set Elisha, the priest, as supervisor. He had chosen that one person to set things in order, to keep things straight. Now, you heard that name Tobiah. Did you see that name Tobiah? If you're familiar with this uh, passage, this, this chapter, you'll know that Tobiah is a fierce enemy of Nehemiah. He is a fierce, in fact, he is not a part of the, of the family of God. He's not a part of their nation. He actually is a part of the surrounding nation who was using their fields while they were gone for grain and wine and was making money off of their, off their land. And so they didn't want God's people to come back and be reestablished. And so before this time, Tobiah was not allowed to enter into the kingdom. He was really not allowed to go in the gates. And he was a fierce enemy. He had threatened Nehemiah with violence. And now the Bible says that Elisha the priest had given him a room in the temple. Now, y'all got to understand how deep this is. Imagine the most fierce enemy in this community against the church. I don't know what that would be or who that would be. But just imagine that while Sergio and Pastor Fred was gone, I went and found the most fiercest enemy, took all of Pastor Fred Sergio's furniture and Pastor Fred's furniture out of their office, put it on the street, and then I moved them in. Could you imagine that? Pastor Sergio coming back to his office, and there's a full liquor cabinet there, and there's a little uh, a craps table, and there's all kind of stuff, and there's ESPN playing. All of that. No, I'm not going to put down ESPN. I'm just, okay, forget it. 
See, all the ladies are laughing about that. Uh-huh, that's right. ESPN is evil. Get ESPN out of my house. I'm cleaning it up, Pastor. I'm shutting off the cable as soon as I get home. And the lady said, amen. <laughs> he had given Tobiah a room in the temple. Now, here, this, is, this is crazy. Because the only reason he had done this is because Nehemiah discovers that Elisha the priest is now a relative to Tobiah. Somehow, there was a wedding. And now, Tobiah and the priest are buddies and friends. Somehow, somebody in their family got married, maybe the kids. And now he has given the opportunity for him to move in to the house of God. So here's the first step that Elisha has to, or excuse me, that Nehemiah has to, to walk towards, and that is reform. He says, look, we've got a problem because now the enemy of God has room in the kingdom. Can I just have you do a quick evaluation? Is there any enemy that has a room in your heart? I'm not talking about complete reign. I'm not talking about something you're battling. I'm just talking about some past has just storing some stuff in your heart. Maybe it was a past relationship that you were in, and you never truly threw your ex out. So all their stuff is still in your heart. All their baggage is still there. All their memories and things they did for you that you're ascribing blame to your new partner, your new spouse, is there. Is there something of your past, some voice that should not be in there that is, that is haunting you because there's, a, there's some room in your heart, room in your life, room in your mind for it. So Nehemiah realizes, I got to get him out. I, I can't believe you let the enemy of God have a storeroom in the house of God. He says, look, we're going to have to throw some things out. And what he does is the Bible says, is he finds out, and let's see, verse, uh, verse 7. So he finds out, he arrives back in Jerusalem, he learned what happened, what Eli Elisha did in the courtrooms of the temple. Verse 8, he says, I became very upset, and I threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded, watch this, that the rooms be, what's that word there? Purified, and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. Look at this step here. He says, first of all, I'm going to have a confrontation. I'm not going to wait to have a meeting. I'm not going to negotiate with Tobiah. I'm going to kick him out. I'm going to take his stuff. You put the verse back up there for me. I'm going to throw it out. He says, I don't even care if you put it in a box. He, the, uh, Nehemiah went straight Beyonce on him. He said, to the left, Everything you own, this is for some people, not everybody, <laughs> to a, in the box to the left. She went, he went Beyonce on him and threw everything out. But this is the step. This is what I love he did. He said, now I need to purify that space. I need to, I need to, re, I need to clean it up. I can't refill the place that belongs to God without purifying it. I got to throw some CDs out. <laughs> I got to throw some music away. 
I got to throw that little itty bitty mini skirt I used to take with me. I got to throw it out. I have to cleanse and purify the space that belongs to God. That's what Jesus wants to do in our lives. He says, your, your heart cannot contain my blessings until I clean it out. It's one of those things where God himself has to come in and purify. And he began to put back the grain offerings and the frankincense. The blessings and the storehouse of God began to be filled up because he went back after he purified it and put it in. Here's the next thing that happened. Somebody just look at your neighbor real quick and say, I'm cleaning it up. I'm going to throw some stuff out. So here's the next thing he found out, verse 10. said he also found out, watch this, that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they and the singers who were to, who were to conduct the worship service had all, all returned to their fields. Look at this, y'all. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglect, neglected? And then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Jerusalem began bringing their tithe of grain, new wine, olive oil to the temple storerooms. So because he had let Tobiah in the church, right? And he had filled up the place for the grain, the frankincense, the storehouse. People stopped giving to the temple. They said, well, Elijah the priest is corrupt. I'm not going to send my tithe to the conference office. I'm not going to return my offerings because something is wrong. But here was the problem because they... The Levites and the priests were supposed to live on that money, on that increase. God had set it up that the Levites were, and the priests were supposed to take care of the temple, take care of the worship service, and they weren't supposed to have another job. God wanted them to be 100% focused on the temple. And a part of the reform that Nehemiah demanded was that the people promised to not neglect the temple. That's back in Nehemiah chapter 10. And so because Tobiah had creeped in and because the storehouse was now filled with his stuff, people stopped giving and the work start, stopped and the Levites and the priests went back to work. So the worship service wasn't planned for. Whoever they had around wasn't prepared. They were tired. And the work of God began to shrink. And the people stopped contributing to the temple and what, what did he do? He said, look, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, verse, uh, verse 11, I'm going to call the Levites back, and I'm going to restore them back to their proper duties. That's the second thing I want you to learn. Is I want you to see that God wants, when you're going to clean something up, you've got to restore people back to the place that they had. Listen to this very carefully. Because somehow the enemy has crept into some of your relationships, some of your primary relationships, whether a parent or a spouse or a child. And they have, the enemy has been able to persuade you to look differently at them. To think differently of them. And because you thought differently of them, you have not contributed to the relationship what you used to contribute to. And now what they needed has been starved, and they go back to a different place. 
But what Nehemiah said was, I need to restore the Levites back to their position. Are you following what I'm saying? The Levites need to go back to the work, back to work. I need to restore them in the eyes of the people. If you're going to clean it up, you've got to think about restoring someone back to the place they should be. I know it's difficult, ladies. I know it's difficult. He's not as handsome as he used to be. His stomach is not as flat as it used to be. His head is a little bit shinier, right? His clothes are a little dirtier. His nails are a little bit longer. He's not Prince Charming anymore. He's just old man toughy, right? And roughy. <laughs> but, but sometimes when you, and, and it's real simple, it's really easy to begin to say, I'm going to have this parent mentality to my husband. I'm going to talk to him like a child. I'm going to tell him what to do. I'm going to send him away. And when you don't restore him back in the place where he should be in your mind, he's not able to give you what you need. You're not able to give him what you need because the resources that are there to, to provide for that person to do what they do well is not there. That's what a good parent does. A good parent provides safety and provides instruction. And watch this for younger parents, discipline. You got, I, don't know, I don't know about this young generation. I'm just saying, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying, now look, I'm part of this, I'm going to blame some of you grandparents. Because I don't know what happens to you when you become grandparents. Can I just pick on some of you grandparents? Because my mom was like this. When I grew up, Mom was not playing, right? Wasn't having it. I don't care what it was, she was the law. I thought my mom was 10 feet tall. I thought she could press 360 pounds. I didn't play with my mom. Soon as I had kids, you can have as much candy as you want. What? What, what, what was that? You ain't got to go to bed. You can stay up all night, watch your TV. I'm like, what has happened to this woman? I don't, yeah, somebody said thank you. I don't remember this growing up. I don't know what happened to you, but this is not the grandma, the mom. I don't know what happens to mom and grandma. That transition is just different. But a good parent, a good grandparent says, I'm going to provide a place of discipline, instruction, and support because I know my role and I want to establish in them and restore in them the place that they are. Here's the thing. They are children. Children. They don't pay bills. They don't work. They don't get to choose what's for dinner. They don't get to choose what time they go to bed. They're children. So if you give them their adult life now, when they get old enough to be an adult, they'll do, they'll, you know, I miss my childhood. They'll pull a Michael Jackson on you, and they'll move back in to your house and want a roller coaster and all that kind of stuff. Okay, I'm getting off my sermon. All right, pray for me, y'all. <laughs> Going to clean it up. You got to restore. Put people back in their rightful place. Respect and remove people that shouldn't be there. He says, I'm putting people back in order. Here's where it gets real crazy now. Uh, I believe I got you guys coming. Oh, yeah. I've got you guys going down here to verse 15, right? Verse 15. Here's the second thing that he found out. This was, even, this was even worse. He said, in those days, I saw the men of Judah treading out wine presses 
on the Sabbath. Lord, have mercy. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise. Brother had fish and chips, smoothies. They had everything on the Sabbath. They were... I'm not going to look at Chris. I'm not going to get started. They were, don't start laughing, Chris. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles. These are the city officials. I went to the Chamber of Commerce, and I said, we need to talk about this. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way? I asked, wasn't it just the sort of thing? That your ancestors did that caused God to bring all this trouble upon our city. You are now bringing even more wrath upon Israel and permitting that the Sabbath is desecrated. So here's what he said in verse 19. He said, I then commanded that the gates of Jerusalem be shut, uh, be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening. Not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates. I remember he worked for Washington. So that means he got the secret service out in front of the church on Friday night, in front of Walmart, Lord have mercy, in front of Yokes. He said, if you belong to Richland Church, you're not coming in here. All right? I'm shutting it down. <laughs> so <laughs> the merchants and tradesmen with, with a variety of wares, this is what they did. They said, fine, we're going to camp outside the city gates. They tried it once or twice. Look what Nehemiah said. But I spoke harsh, spark, sharply to them. What are you doing out here camping on the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time, I like what Nehemiah said, that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. There was corruption. There was a desecration of the Sabbath. And Nehemiah says, we can't have it. If I'm cleaning it up, I need to make sure that we are focused on God during this time. Listen, what he had to do, he said, look, we're going to have to make, I'm going to need to respond to this. This is not something I can just let go. This is not something I can just let pass by. I need to set this in order. He says, I'm going to put my own men on the job. I'm going to make sure that nobody comes in here and sells this stuff. They were, they were setting up Amazon during Sabbath morning. How distracting is that? And he says, what they tried to do is test me. They said, I'm just going to camp outside the wall. I'm just going to wait for them to compromise. I'm just going to be visible enough to make them compromise. You made a decision, went through financial peace. I'm not going to do any extra shopping. And then you get that thing in the mail. 30% off. But we ain't supposed to shop. We're not supposed to do that. Honey, let me just, I mean, I can just look and see what they have sitting outside the wall. I know it's the Sabbath. I, I ain't going to check to see who's winning college football today. I'm, but maybe I'll just, I ain't going to watch the game. But I might just check and see if they won. Standing outside the wall. He says there's some boundaries. He said, look, if I catch you here again, I'm going to arrest you. Look, if you're going to clean it up, you got to make sure that you are in control. You got to make sure that you respond to the threat. That you go right away to it, confront it, and say, this cannot continue. One more last thing. Verse 23 says, 
about the same time I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashad and Ammon and Moab. You got to understand that he had a really strict, fierce rule about not marrying foreign women. And it wasn't a racial thing. It had nothing to do with race. It had to do that historically when they married people outside of, of, of Jerusalem, outside of the Israelite nation, they would typically allow their gods to come into their lives. And so they had, part of the reform was we're not going to be marrying other women. Keep your eyes on the women in the church. Come on, somebody say amen. It's a bunch of sisters in the church. You don't have to go somewhere else. So he says, I realized they had married some, verse, verse 24. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashad or some other people and could not spend, speak the language of Judah. This will preach. This generation wasn't speaking the language. It, it makes me raise the question, what language is this generation going to speak? Half of them are speaking kingdom language. Half of them are speaking something else. Half of them are speaking worship. Half of them are speaking something else. Half of them are speaking the truths of God. Half of them are not speaking the right language. He said there's a problem here because half the children here don't know the language of the kingdom. They don't know how to communicate. Now, here's the thing. Most likely, the language that they were speaking was the common language. But his problem was that some in the generation couldn't speak the language. He didn't say, I don't want you not to speak that language. He said, there's a problem here because some of the generation only speaks this language. Look, if you're going to shut it down, if you're going to clean it up, everybody needs to speak the same language. You cannot attach yourselves to foreign people, foreign voices, foreign input. Input. You cannot believe what MSNBC says, what Fox News says. You need to listen to the word of God and speak the same language. We don't speak the language of the world. We speak the language of God. There's a problem here. Because this generation has seen another generation married to things that are not of God, and now they're confused. He said, look, I got a problem with that. So what did he do? He said, I confronted them. I pulled down curses. This is one of my favorite parts in the Bible, Doug. I love this. I pulled down curses on them. He says, I beat some of them. I beat them. Nehemiah, I beat them up. That's what he did. I beat, look what he said. I pulled out their hair. Now, in the Bible. <laughs> Really, the translation says he pulled out some of the hair from their beard. And all you brothers in here with a beard. <laughs> Imagine you got a call from Renee. Um, Pastor, we'd like to come visit you. When are you available? Oh, sure. <laughs> I'll be available on Tuesday. Well, Pastor Nehemiah just wants to have a quick meeting with you regarding some things he heard uh, about at what's going on at home. And Pastor Nehemiah shows up, and you say, hi, Pastor, come on in. <laughs> and the first thing he does is grab the top of your hair, if you got some, maybe you grab the back. He'll grab the back of your head and pull a huge chunk out of your beard. Nehemiah was putting his hands on people. 
I, I just think that's funny because Nehemiah is like, you know what? I tried to be nice the first time. I tried to be nice the second time. I've been gone for seven years. You're getting on my nerves. I told you don't do this. And now there's only one way to communicate with you. I'm going to beat the brakes off you. You know that phrase, I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to put these hands on you. He said, I made them swear in the name of God they would not let their children intermarry with pagan people of the land. He says, if you're going to clean it up, you got to make the people remember. Remember why you did this. Remember why you started. Remember why you committed to this. And you've got to be 100% committed to putting your hands on some people. Now, look, let me clarify this. Let me clarify this. For somebody goes home, says, you know what? I'm sick of my neighbor. He's been bothering me every week. You know what? Pastor said, I'm going to go and pull out his beard. No, I, I want to make sure we're clear on it. Everybody just go home and start shaving. I'm going to shave my beard. No, not today. He's not pulling the beard out of my hair. <laughs> make a decision to say, regardless of what it takes, I want this bad enough that I got to put my hands on some people. I want this bad enough that I need to confront some things in my life, and I'm going to put my hands on them. I'm going to humiliate them to make them swear that you will not cause chaos in this generation. I think it's time for a church. I think it's time for a church to, to roll up our sleeves and put our hands on some people. I'm not, <laughs> and I'm not talking about individuals, although it may come to that. I'm talking about poverty. I'm talking about homelessness. I'm talking about domestic violence. I'm talking about racism and hatred. I'm talking about stuff in our community that we're going to say, you know what? This is the king. We're the kingdom of God, and we want the people to enjoy and experience the life that God's called them to. And we are no longer going to let these issues permeate, not only in our church, but in our community. We're not going to let our children be illiterate. We're not going to let our children be hungry. We're not going to let our children feel deficient and hate one another. We are going to grab this stuff by the by the beard and we'll pull it out and we'll humiliate it until it's not an issue i don't know about you but i'm not looking to be in a church come on that's all right give god the praise for that i don't want to be a part let's get come on that's what we're supposed to do we're saying i don't want to be a part of something that plays it safe you see this violence and you see this stuff that's happening i don't want to go to abc and buy six hundred dollars worth of fried chick and, and hide somewhere and buy a bunch of guns and move somewhere and hide. I don't want to do that. I want to bring hope. I want to bring peace. I want to bring prosperity. I want to stand and do this. I want to be bold. I want to proclaim the truth of God in a loving way. I want to put my hands around some of these things that are destroying our children and destroying our generation and making sure that we are saying we're cleaning it up. So I take you back to that last verse. Nehemiah chapter 30, or chapter 13, verse 30. Says, So I purged everything foreign. I assigned the tasks to the priests and the Levites, making certain that each one knew its work. I love how he closes it up, closes it up. He says, I, I put everybody back in order. He said, I, I, I cleansed everything. I pure, 
everything that was foreign, I purified it, I got it out, and I assigned the people back in place. I want to read something to you from a book, Prophets and Kings, written by Ellen White. It's what she says. The work of reform is to be carried out today. There is need of men like Ezra and Nehemiah who would not palliate or excuse sin, not shrink from vindicating the honor of God. Those upon whom rests the burden of this work will not hold their peace when wrong is done. Neither will they cover evil with a cloak of false charity. They will remember that God is no respecter of persons and that the severity of a few may prove mercy to many. Make that direct declaration that I'm cleaning it up. Make a decision that when I leave church today, I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to do something that brings God honor. Because that's all it was for him. Nehemiah said, this is not bringing God honor. This is not bringing God praise. And I'm going to remove it because it doesn't belong here. So the church of the living God, I'm, God is calling you today. God's calling you to think about it this way. To say, God, what is it in my life that you need to clean up? Because it starts with us. It starts with giving God permission to walk into your life and say, you know what? This doesn't belong here. I need to move this. This person has influence that doesn't need to have influence. You're listening to this voice. You're doing what this person is telling you to do. You're not speaking the same language in this. Let's get this together. Let's be a part of the process, and let's clean it up. And so it's only Jesus. Because like I said before, it only takes one person. The Bible tells us that in the face of sin, in the face of an overwhelming problem to humanity, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death that we might be renewed. Jesus said it only takes one person. It only takes me. I'll bring healing. I'll bring restoration. I'll bring joy back again to the earth. And when I come again, I'm coming for those who have trusted in me and loved me. So we're going to sing this song, and then I'm going to come back and pray for you. And this song just simply declares that there's no one but Jesus, no one worthy and powerful enough to clean it up in our lives. And when we're done singing, I want to pray for somebody, and pray for someone today who's making that decision that they want God to clean it up in their life.